Would you think me arrogant if I told you that right now I know the single greatest struggle in your life? If I, what if I told you that I don't know, I know not only the single greatest struggle in your life today, but I know the single greatest struggle in your life tomorrow and this week and this month and every day until the day you die. Would, would you think me presumptuous if I said that, like I'm saying it right now? Well, let me tell you, I'll tell you what it is, and then you can decide. I'm convinced that the greatest single struggle that you and I face today and every day of our lives is this. Who or what are you going to worship? When we talk about worship, we tend to think of going to church or singing Christian songs. But worship is actually a whole lot bigger than that. The Bible tells us that that every minute, every hour, every day in our existence, we're always worshiping something or someone. Follow me here. In the sense that we're always ascribing worth or value to something or someone as that which will satisfy our thirst for glory, significance, meaning, and security. Because we never stop doing that. We never stop looking to something or someone to give us meaning, significance, security, identity. We never stop worshiping. That means the question right now that you and I need to wrestle with is not if we're worshiping, but what are we worshiping? What, what person or thing are, are you holding up right now in your life to all the people around you as that person or thing that you are convinced will give you satisfaction and joy? You are doing that in some way. The question is, what is it? And on that question, the word of God takes anything, friend, but a neutral stance. Anything but a neutral stance. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What's that mean? Well, that means worshiping the one true God is not an option for the spiritually inclined. Okay? Nor is it a matter of personal preference. It is a divine command. It's a divine command. The God who created us is far too loving and far too jealous for his glory to stand idly by what we run to everything but him for the joy and satisfaction that can only be found in him. He's far too jealous and far too loving. And so it's no surprise when Jesus answers the question, what is the first and greatest commandment with these words? You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, and, and with all your mind. God, God created us, God commands us to worship him and him alone, to exalt him in the eyes of all the people around us by looking only to him for the joy and satisfaction that we long for. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about worship. And God has every right to demand that for no other reason than because he says so. He has every right to compel my worship, to compel your worship. But listen, church, he never just says, because I say so. He compels our worship. He has every right to compel our worship, but he compels our worship by giving us reasons to worship him. <laughs> okay? Reasons to trust him. Reasons to have no other gods before him. That's how he compels our worship. And if you're a Jewish exile living in the land of Babylon, this question of why should I worship God is exceedingly relevant. Why? Well, because evidently this God in whom I'm supposed to find all my joy, all my satisfaction, he just dropped me off in a foreign land. I'm in, I'm in exile. Daniel, okay, tell me why should I worship a God like that? Why should I worship God? Why, why should you worship God? Why well, I'm convinced, church, Daniel 3 is all about answering that question. Why should I worship God? Why should you worship God? Why should the Babylonian exiles worship God? And this is the answer. Ready? All right, here's, here's why. Here's the main point. Why worship God? Because God is faithful to deliver those who choose to trust him. That's why. That's not the only answer the Bible gives to why worship God, but the screaming main answer in Daniel 3 is this. Why worship God? Because God is faithful to deliver those who choose to trust him. Now in one sense, in one sense, the beginning of Daniel 3 is totally not what you would expect on the heels of Daniel 2. Now think about this. All right? In Daniel 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream where he sees this frightening image, this frightening image. It's, it's got a head of gold. It's got a chest and arms of silver. It's got a middle of bronze. It's got legs and feet of iron. And, and in, at the end of this dream, there's a stone cut by no human hand that suddenly comes in, strikes the image on the feet. The whole thing comes crumbling down. The wind blows it away. And the stone grows into a mountain filling the whole earth. And a Jewish counselor in Nebuchadnezzar's court by the name of Daniel recounts and interprets the dream. He, he tells the king, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the four medals in this statue represent four kingdoms that will rule the earth prior to the arrival of God's kingdom, which is represented by the stone. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel tells him that the head of gold represents his kingdom. The kingdom of Babylon. And yet, other kings and other kingdoms will one day take his place. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, if you're familiar with chapter 2, is just in awe. I mean, one, and primarily, because he didn't tell Daniel the dream. He just said, tell me what it is and then interpret it. Well, Daniel did both. He's amazed, so he gives him a big old promotion. And he declares to Daniel, Daniel 2.47, truly, your God is is God of gods, Lord of kings. 
and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. It almost sounds like Nebuchadnezzar has had a big old change of heart. God of gods, Lord of kings. Insert chapter 3. Look at what he does next. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Don't miss the connection, church. Don't miss it. God says, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom is the head of gold but it's not the whole image. It's not going to last. Oh, really? Well, check this out. I'm going to make the thing of gold all the way down, top to bottom. You say my kingdom isn't going to last, that that I'm not going to live forever and reign forever? Well, we'll see about that. It was an act of direct defiance against the authority and supremacy of God. That's what this is. He he has an opportunity here after God has shown his power in chapter 2 to say, you know what? You are God of gods. You are Lord of kings. But not only did he refuse to do that, he then goes on, he then goes on to have the audacity to create an image that declares, no, 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 check it out. My dominion is the everlasting dominion. My glory will endure from generation to generation. And then he commands every person who has any sort of importance in his kingdom to gather around, fall down, and worship this image that testifies to the glory of his kingdom and the glory of his power. Translation, Daniel and his God can say whatever they want to. I will be praised. I will be worshipped. And I'm going to force everyone around me to join me in looking to my rule and my kingdom for glory, meaning, significance, and security. That's what's going on here. And, And what's so striking, I think, about this entire situation is that Nebuchadnezzar is doing here exactly what got Israel into exile in the first place. Exactly. What's that? They stopped worshiping Yahweh and started worshiping the idols of the surrounding nations. Right? They, they looked to gods of wood and stone for identity and security no less than we look to people or pleasures or possessions or achievements to give us identity and security today. We do that we, we might not bow down before a 90-foot image of gold. I don't think that could fit in most of your homes. <laughs> but you bet we bow down to our work or our relationships or our bank accounts or our hobbies, demanding that those things give us the satisfaction and joy that we long for. We do that. That, that temptation never goes away, and it, and it never went away for the Jewish exiles in Babylon. So in this first part of Daniel chapter 3, Daniel gives us the strongest possible critique of idolatry by saying at least three things about our idolatry. First, our idolatry is arrogant. 
It's arrogant. That, that's the whole point of him locating this story right at the end of chapter 2. Okay, it's arrogant. It was unbelievably arrogant for Nebuchadnezzar to create an image of gold from top to bottom. Unbelievably arrogant. Friend, do you realize it is unbelievably arrogant whenever we engage in the same sort of idolatry? Whenever we functionally say, God, I don't believe you are who you say you are. I believe there's more meaning, glory, significance, and security in my job or in my sex life or in the moral behavior of my kids than I could ever find in you. Their dominion is the everlasting dominion. They will endure from generation to generation. That's that's what we say. Well, friend, who are we to think that those things, some of which are very, very good, very good, can compare to the joy and satisfaction of relationship with the God of the universe. I mean, who, how arrogant to think that. And he's not just the God of the universe. He's the God that loves you so much that he would lay down his life to die for you. It is unbelievably arrogant for us to look for joy and meaning in anyone or anything else but him. Our idolatry is arrogance. Second, our idolatry is foolish. It's foolish. Notice, this is amazing. I I hope you noticed how many times this phrase, the image that Nebuchadnezzar set up, or the image King Nebuchadnezzar made, shows up in the first 18 verses. I counted this week 10 times. Ten times. And it's almost to the point that it's ridiculous. So look at verse 3. Why why does the angel do this? Verse 3. And all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. I mean, if I'm an English editor, I'm looking at this thinking, how about just they stood before it? I mean, I'm tracking Daniel. There's a big image. It's all, the story's all about it. Why why do you keep the image of the King Nebuchadnezzar? The image of the King, what's up with that? Well, he's not stupid. He's making a point, okay? He uses that phrase, the the image that King Nebuchadnezzar set up as a profound critique of Babylonian idolatry. All these people, all these officials, they're, they're bowing down and worshiping as God something that this guy created. He made it. I mean, for crying out loud, people, Nebuchadnezzar made the statue. It, it didn't have power to make itself. It didn't even have power to set itself up. It's, Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar had to set it up. I mean, that's nuts. You're going to bow down to that? Why, why are you bowing down to something created when, when there's nothing in the created world that can compare to the glory of the creator? Why would you do that? I mean, let's be honest. Apart from God, apart from the creator, there is nothing in this created world that would have any glory. In fact, nothing in this created world would even exist. And the glory that it it does have, that things in the created world do have, the the satisfaction of work or the pleasure of sex or the perfection of a a manicured lawn or the joy of relationships or or the beauty of a sunrise. It all points back to God. Isaiah 40, lift up your eyes on high and see. 
Look at the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. Oh, friend, take care that you don't allow the glory of created things to lure your heart away from the glory of the creator. Okay, our idolatry is arrogant, our idolatry is foolish, and lastly, our idolatry is really easy. It's easy, okay? The, the pressure, let's be honest, the pressure that these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced to bow down to a pagan idol, pagan idol while living in exile in a foreign land was really strong. Strong pressure. Strong pressure. Why? Well, because their physical life happened to be on the line. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Why? Well, because of failure, verse 12, to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, O king, is a failure to submit to your authority. It's an act of treason. What's Nebuchadnezzar going for here? He's going for unity. He's going for conformity. And the safest approach when a dictator is going for unity and conformity is to simply do what, verse 7, all the people's languages and nations were all doing. All doing. Worship the image. Worship the idol. Why not? Everyone's doing it. Everyone's doing it. Brothers and sisters, if you're a follower of Christ, I want you to remember that you are living in exile. If you're living in exile, this place is not your home. And the world, your flesh, and the devil are right now in this very moment working as hard as they possibly can to entice your heart away from worshiping the one true God. They're doing that right now. Idolatry for Israel, idolatry for the exiles, idolatry for us, it's unbelievably arrogant. It's insanely foolish, and it's deceptively easy. And when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to worship this idol, Nebuchadnezzar gets furious. He's furious. This group of Chaldeans that, that, that appear to be jealous that he would put Jews in the highest positions of authority in Babylon, they, they rat these guys out. And they, and they come to the, the king and they, they feign concern for his authority and honor. But they say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, these guys are traitors. These guys aren't loyal to you. They're not bowing down. And Nebuchadnezzar gives them a second chance. He calls them out. I'll let the orchestra play just for you guys if you want. And he mocks their so-called God in the process. So look at verse 15. Nebuchadnezzar says, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Friend, whenever you read that in the Bible, that's what I call a buckle your seatbelt moment. Why? Why? Because when a human being says to the God of the universe, you're going to deliver them out of my hand? Hold on. <laughs> Watch out. Look out. Why? Oh, because he's jealous for his glory. He's jealous for his glory. 
What's Nebuchadnezzar saying? There's no one greater than me, even among the gods. No one. And even if, guys, your God is real, he's powerless to resist my will. It's, it's Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, basically, only one person is in charge around here, guys, and you're looking at him. <laughs> you're looking at him. Friend, I wonder, I can't help but wonder, if you've ever felt like you live in that sort of world, a world where the authority of man, the, the influence of man, the voice of man, the opinions of man, just looms over you like a monster. You can't stop thinking about what she said. You can't stop worrying about what he'll do. It feels like your boss is running your life or your, or your kids are running your life or your in-laws are running your life and your God is missing in action. Maybe, maybe you entered into this relationship with someone willingly at first, but now it feels like slavery. Why do I say slavery? Well, because if they're happy, you're okay. If they're not happy, you're not okay. You're enslaved. And whether that other person realizes it or not, that human being is compelling more and more of your worship with every passing day. That's, that's what Nebuchadnezzar was ultimately trying to do here, right? Trying to demand, trying to compel worship. So if you find yourself in that position, if you find yourself locked in, as it were, the, the gravitational pull of idolatry, what are you going to do? It's a genuine question. What what are you going to do? Where where are you going to turn if you're in exile in this world? If if you're pressed on every side by the lure of idolatry, what, what hope do you have for change? The second half of Daniel 3 is all about answering that question. And Daniel answers it in this way. God is faithful to deliver those who choose to trust him. That's the answer. God is faithful to deliver those who choose to trust him. Look look at verse 16. I I think verses 16 to 18 of Daniel 3 contain some of the most amazing expressions of faith in the entire Bible. Entire Bible. Especially given the incredible pressure that these guys were under to exchange the worship of God for the worship of an idol. So look at verse 16. What do they say to Nebuchadnezzar? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Did you really just say that? I mean, three young men. These are teenagers, okay? Don't don't forget that. Three young men standing before the most powerful ruler in the entire universe at the time, no doubt looking, feeling all the heat waves from a burning fiery furnace, which archaeologists estimate was probably running at about 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. Heat waves. They look at this guy and they say, we have no need to answer you. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not accountable to you. And the God to whom we are accountable is more than capable of answering you, seeing as how you have directly challenged his authority. 
That's what they're saying. Nebuchadnezzar, we might work for you, but we don't serve you. Some of you need to hear that, where you feel enslaved at your work. Nebuchadnezzar, we might work for you, but we don't serve you. We serve our God, verse 17. And he's not just the God or a God, he's what? He's our God. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who created us to know him and be known by him. He's not a data point in the spiritual realm. He's the creator and Lord of the universe. And Nebuchadnezzar, we have the privilege of living in relationship with him. That's what they're saying to this guy with the simple phrase, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now look at what they say next, verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. What do we need to see here? Well, Daniel wants us to see that what these young men believed about God is precisely what enabled them to remain faithful to God in the face of tremendous pressure to do everything but that. What they believed about God is precisely what enabled them to remain faithful to God in the face of tremendous pressure to do anything but that. And if we're willing to follow their example, friend, if if today you're willing to follow their example of trusting God, then you can expect the exact same power at work in your life. Exact same power, all right? Exact same power. So what do they believe? What do they believe about God that we can join them in believing about God and must join them in believing about God? Three things. Okay, I'll give them to you up front and we're gonna go through them. One, God is able. Two, God is faithful. And three, God is worthy. Okay, here we go. First, trusting God means believing he is able to save. Able to save. Think about it. How did these guys know that? It's not like they had four prior fiery furnace experiences and thought, you know what? Four points makes a line. I think we're going to be okay. No, they didn't have that. So what do they have? They had a relationship with a covenant-keeping God. Our God. Yahweh. They, they, They had a relationship with him. And because of that relationship, they knew him. They knew he was their God. Listen, the God who delivered his people from the hand of Pharaoh, from the hand of Moab, the hand of Edom, the hand of the Amorites, the hand of the Ammonites, the hand of the Philistines, the hand of Midian, and the hand of Assyria. Just to mention a couple of the armed multitudes that God delivered Israel from. Okay? So what had their national history taught them? It had taught them that that there never has been, there never is, there never will be another human power on the earth that can stand against God. That's what their history taught them. He's God, people are not, end of story. He created all things, he, he controls all things, his knowledge is perfect, his power is infinite. Think about it. He has no checks and balances. He doesn't need permission or ever ask for it. He is merciful. He is mighty. He is not like us. He is God. Job 38. 
Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Jeremiah 32, behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. What would you say to that? When God looks at us and says, is anything too hard for me? I don't, I don't know what sort of fiery furnace you're walking through right now, what, what sort of pressure you're under to abandon your faith or just begin turning away from following the Lord, but I know this, I know this, friend, because God says this, God is able to deliver you. He's able to deliver you. He's always able to deliver you. Nothing is too hard for him. God never does a press conference and says, sorry, that's above my pay grade. We're out of my league. At his word, waves are still. At his word, sickness is just gone. At his word, the demons tremble and, and flee. The, the longest lasting, seemingly most intractable problems in your life are no match for the power of God. They don't hold a candle to him. No match. No match. If he can remove kings and set up kings, then you bet he can heal your body or repair your relationship. Or deliver you from sexual sin. Or give you a job. Oh, but Matthew, you don't know my situation. You don't know it. You don't know how bad things are or how long they've been that way. Well, you're right. I don't. But I do know who God is. And he says to you, friend, is anything too hard for me? Nothing's too hard for him. Trusting God means believing he's able. That's the first thing we believe. Second, we believe he's able. Second, trusting God means believing he is faithful. Look at verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Watch this. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Now, now how in the world could these guys say that? How, how could they know that? I mean, did they get some sort of sudden, like, psycho-spiritual sense? Ooh, I just got good vibes that I'm gonna, I'm gonna get out of the fiery furnace. Did you feel that, man? Oh, I felt it. Hey, king, we're getting out. Well, it doesn't say that. I mean, it doesn't say they suddenly had a vision where, you know, bah. dude, five minutes from now, I saw us all walking out of the furnace. No. No, so... They didn't talk with Nebuchadnezzar that long. How, how could they say that? How could they know? This is the question, right? That God wasn't just able to deliver them, but would actually be faithful to deliver them. 
Psalm 33. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 34, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 37, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Psalm 68, our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Psalm 149, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people and adorns the humble with salvation. That's just the Psalms, okay? How do we know? We we know God is able to deliver us and we know God is faithful to deliver us because he's promised to do that over and over and over again. It's not just some hope we conjure up after a great worship time that goes away as soon as you get a bill in the mail. (laughs) No. No, that's a hope based on the authoritative word of God. Friend, take care, please take care that you don't allow a belief in the sovereignty of God. This is so important to create a sort of passive resignation where faith becomes nothing more than que sera, sera. What will be, will be. Biblical faith takes God at his word, trusting that he is able to save and that he is faithful to save because he has promised to save. It's not arrogant or presumptuous to expect salvation from the Lord. It is precisely what humility means and requires. Okay, we believe God's able, we believe God's faithful, and finally, we believe God is worthy. Faithful, able, worthy. Look back at verse 17. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, but if not, Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You know what? It's not their courage that first strikes me when I read those words. You know what first strikes me? I read that, I hear that, and I think, goodness gracious, can I edit the Bible? You're introducing doubt. You're introducing unbelief. What is this? But if not... I mean, you guys are on a roll. Like, I can really preach this text, you know? He's able to deliver us. He will deliver us. But if not, no, 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 no. But when he does, typo. (laughs) What's this but if not? Oh, please listen carefully. The but if not is a powerful reminder That trusting God means resting not in our understanding of what he does. But in his revelation of who he is. I'm going to say that again. (laughs) The but if not means that trusting God means resting not in our understanding of what he does. But in his revelation of who he is. I love how how Brian Chappell says this. Listen, biblical faith is not confidence in particular outcomes. All right? It is confidence in a sovereign God. 
We trust that he knows what we cannot discern and plans what we cannot anticipate. (laughs) Oh, you bet he does. And secures our eternity, yes he does, in ways beyond our fathoming. Friend, I wonder if you've allowed your faith in God in some way to shift into a not faith that holds God hostage to temporal outcomes that he never promises to give you. What has what is, what is he promised? That he's able to save? That he's faithful to save? Okay. So what is that going to look like between now and the day you die? Well, I don't entirely know. Why? Why not? Because God refuses to allow us to confine his deliverance to a set of life events and circumstances that make sense to us. He refuses to do that. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so so we end up crying out with Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Though he slay me, though his ways make no sense to me, I will hope in him. Why? Because if not, he's still God. He's still good. And he is worthy of your trust, friend. He's worthy of your trust. I mean, how else are you going to explain the martyrs in the history of the church or the persecuted Christians who this morning died for their faith? I mean, is God faithful to save them? Well, in the sense of prolonging their life on earth, duh, no. But in the sense of rescuing them from all the pain of their persecution. And ushering them into the eternal joy of heaven, we have to respond with a resounding, yes. Yes, he is. Okay? Listen, there are two ditches, two traps we've got to avoid here. On the one hand, we must not allow a creeping cynicism to confine our expectation of God's deliverance merely to eternity. God is faithful to save in the present. Hear that, not just in the future. But on the other hand, we must also not allow an expectation of a particular form of deliverance in the present to hold God hostage to our wisdom and understanding. Those are the ditches. Okay? And when that one happens, we exchange trusting in the goodness and faithfulness of God for trusting in a set of circumstances that make sense to us. So what's the balance? Help me out here, Williams. <laughs> Let me try, okay? What's the balance? Do this, do this. Pray fervently for God's deliverance because he is able to save and faithful to save. But having done that, don't force him to act in a box of your own making. Pray fervently to God because he is able to save and faithful to save. But having done that, don't force him to act in a box of your own making. He's God. You're not. And he's infinitely worthy of our trust and obedience simply because of who he is. Who he is. God's able to deliver, he's faithful to deliver. And he's worthy of our trust because of who he is. Now please notice that the fact Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, perfect as they were, 
clung to that, didn't spare them from pain and suffering. Didn't. They got thrown in a fiery furnace that killed the big bad dudes that tossed them in. Okay? Many generations of faithful Christians have paid no less of a price for refusing to recant their faith in God. A less of a price. But then, in this case, something happens that Nebuchadnezzar never saw coming. Look at verse 24. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered him and said to the king, true, O king. It's pretty much what you always say to Nebuchadnezzar. What you say goes. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, now whether that was an angel of the Lord or, or an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, that's kind of up for debate here. But what we do know is that in the middle of the greatest trial of their life, God didn't leave these guys alone. He didn't leave them alone. He was, he was with them. Isaiah 43, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the fire, through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. What's that mean? Well, it means that to believe in God is able, and God is faithful, and God is worthy, we add, God is near. He's near. He's near. And friend, if you're a Christian, that promise of God's nearness has already been fulfilled in a marvelous way in your life through the gospel. Matthew 1, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. The God who has called you to be faithful unto death, no matter what it cost, has promised to you in Christ that he will never leave you and never forsake you. A hostile world might mock you. A hostile family member might reject you. And I should add, you had better be careful to make sure as far as you are able that that's not happening because of your sin. But when it happens, when when there's a cost to be paid for embracing the call of God, for following him, not the ways of this world, know this, you are never alone. Never, ever, ever alone. Jesus is with you. Always. And when Nebuchadnezzar sees these guys walking in the midst of the fire, he cries out, come out, come here. And notice this, the, the three young men They walk out, and all these dudes who, in verse 3, were all gathered around this false god, who are they gathered around now? The image bearers of the one true God. Isn't that amazing? They're gathered around the image bearers of the one true God, and they can't believe what they see. Verse 27, they saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. (laughs) 
Okay, what does that scream to us? It screams God doesn't do partial salvations. That's what it screams. He doesn't play for the tie. Or eke out victory in your life. His deliverance is perfect, friend. It's perfect. His salvation is decisive. I mean, I mean, you could argue, you could argue that, you know, um, no one would care, God, about like a partially burned cloak, or or maybe you know, a singed eyebrow. <laughs> Or, you know, hey, you smell a little bit like smoke. I mean, nobody would care. The point is you walked into 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit and you walked out alive. So, I mean, you know, God, just don't worry about the details. Well, that's not the way God rolls. Why? Because he's exceedingly jealous for his glory. And he doesn't do anything less than perfect salvation. In Daniel 3, we'll conclude with this. God rescued three young men from a furnace in Babylon for the sake of his glory. Friend, today, the same God is rescuing men and women from all peoples and all nations and all languages from the fire of hell for the sake of his glory. And he's doing it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, leading, leading sinners like you and me to repent of our sin and trust Jesus to deliver us from the guilt of our sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin so that we could come to say with Nebuchadnezzar, there is no God who is able to rescue in this way. And if you want that to be your experience, okay, not just once, but every day of your life, if, if you want the Lord to be faithful to deliver you, then that requires something of you. You have to choose to trust him. You have to. He will not save you against your will. He will change your will, but you must choose to trust him. And you must choose to trust him even when the cost of following him seems inevitably great. Jesus told you and me that there would be a price to pay for deciding to worship God. It might not be in the form of, of government-sponsored persecution where your, your physical life is on the line, but it might mean sacrificing your sanity for raising three little kids. We're sacrificing a, a promotion for the sake of serving your church. You know, we're, we're, we're sacrificing that person's approval for the sake of telling them about the Lord. Whatever the cost, know that whenever you choose to reject the gods of this world for the sake of following Christ, God will not fail to comfort you with his presence and deliver you by his power. He is faithful to save those who choose to trust him. Do that today, friend. Do that right now. Stop looking to an idol that can never give you joy and satisfaction for the deliverance that only your God can give you. Stop, stop, stop doing that.
trust him right now. Let's pray. Lord, we believe from your word this morning that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus, I I ask right now that, that you would grant the gift of saving faith to some of the men and women in this room. Lord, I pray where we are guilty as charged and we have run to false gods, culturally acceptable, respectable idols for the joy and satisfaction and deliverance that only you can give. I pray for the grace to repent. And then I pray for the faith to believe you are able, you are faithful, you are worthy, and you are near that we might obey and follow you alone and cry out and call upon you alone all the days of our life. Help us do that now as we sing. Amen.